Hey everybody, welcome to the Something Pretty Podcast, which is a podcast where we teach a very special sweeping technique. Clay, do you have any uh, special techniques that you use to clean the house, sweep the floors? Do you sweep the floors or do you vacuum the floors? I vacuum. We have a dog that sheds more than any animal should possibly shed. Like he's shed so much yet never has any less hair. And I don't know how it. Ha- I don't know how it works. I don't know how animals work. I need but, a uh, secret. I need a secret. It's it's a it's a it's it's a must vacuum house we live in. We we used to vacuum the hardwood. Uh, we sweep now. <clears throat> I find the sweeping to be a little bit more. I don't know. Uh, efficient. Sometimes the the vacuum just can't get the like the Cheerio or whatever, and you've run over yeah. the Cheerio a hundred times and never never gets sucked up. But um, we I gotta do, say we sweep three times a day anyway. Oh, three times a day. Whoa. I got so many Cheerios. The kids have yeah. dropped Cheerios everywhere. <laughs> there is nothing more satisfying to me than running a vacuum over a carpet and just hearing that jingle jangle of shit getting yeah, sucked getting, up into it. <laughs> we we have carpet upstairs, and I vacuum the upstairs because I think it's more effective. But it is. Um, do you ever use like a? Do you have, do you have any? I don't know if you you probably have all hardwood in your place, right? We do, but we have we have like uh, area rugs and stuff. So yeah. our, our dog, our dog who sheds everywhere doesn't like hardwood floors, so right. we we, uh, we have a lot of carpets down. <laughs> island to island. Yeah, we've carpet yeah. upstairs, which I'm going to get rid of eventually, I think, just cuz I don't really like it, but uh, it does need to be like carpet shampooed twice a year, and that's mm-hmm. a very satisfying thing to do too if you like the um if you like the vacuum cleaner, thinking that's getting stuff up, wait till you run a carpet cleaner on some wall-to-wall carpeting. Do you have someone who comes in and do it, or do you have like a shampoo? No, I go use? to Big Y and rent their little machine for like oh, 25 yeah. bucks. You can rent the machine. Yeah. So now that everybody's stopped listening. Yeah. <laughs> except, <laughs> except the other middle-aged the, men. The carpet enthusiasts. <laughs> <laughs> There's no Berber, carpet. It's an in- industry term. No carpet in Deadwood. It's hard to get the bloodstains out. We're going to be talking about Bullock returns to camp. Let's take a break. We'll play the music, and we'll come back and break it down. You're listening to a podcast that is a lie agreed upon. Join Wes and Clay as they discuss HBO's Deadwood and tell you something pretty. Bullock Returns to the Camp is the seventh episode of Deadwood, directed by Michael Engler, written by Jody Wirth. In this episode, Bullock and Utter spot Jack McCall passed out inside a bunkhouse. Bullock spares his life. Two teenagers, Flora and Miles, arrive in Deadwood looking for their father. Saul Star comes to pick up Alma Trixie and the little Mets girl for Brom Garrett's funeral. That widow ain't high, Al observes. Farnham makes a rushed and inappropriate offer to Alma at the funeral. Swearingen confronts Trixie with her betrayal. Cochran, Reverend Smith, and Jane continue to tend to the sick. Their work is complicated by Smith's seizures. Bullock informs Swearingen that he is holding him responsible for the outcome of the widow's claim. She gets a square deal or I come for you, Bullock says. Flora turns tricks at the Bella Union. Which place to make? Which place would make a better score? Asks her brother Miles, who's working at the gym, where I'm working. Flora replies. So, we're into episode seven. Uh, I think this was. Uh, I, I like this episode. I think this one's my favorite of the past couple that we've seen. Um, yeah. I like this one quite a bit. Yeah, I would agree. Um, I think this one. I, I, what's really nice about this one is it is it. Uh, it really shows you a bit of a turning point in Bullock. And I think what makes it so satisfying is it really gives you the first um, 
standoff with with Bullock and and Al in any real meaningful way where it's like, you know, we're not pussyfooting around anymore. This is how it's going to be. Yeah. Uh, they're butting heads. And but somehow Seth has managed to in, in order to make that happen. He's he's less angry about it. Like he's still angry, but he's not seething angry. I can't even look at this fucking guy. Mm-hmm. He's he's managed to because uh, um, he got hit in the head by an Indian, I guess he he's able to channel that stuff more productively i guess yeah he's more um well that i guess that's interesting and that's a good place to start because i I think that uh he is more he is channeling it more efficiently but it's more because i think that he is not he's dealing in like the terms of what he knows is making him angry as opposed to like negotiating the terms of a lease which he doesn't understand why he's angry about that Mm -hmm. yeah so uh, it's interesting because i was going to say that like um I thought you were going to come in with the because uh, you had talked about how Seth and uh, Swearingen are had like their interactions in the early first couple episodes, and you walked away thinking that like um, Seth is being unreasonable with it. Mm-hmm. And what's I think what's neat about this one and, and how it's so di- how, why Deadwood is so different from the other traditional westerns is that in a traditional western. Bullock is like the clear-cut hero in this situation, yeah. right? And Alma is like the love interest who's being swindled by the cutthroat, uh, like the criminals in town and stuff like that. And he strides in and he does something uh, about it by confronting Swearingen. But what's funny here is that I still, mostly from that scene, think that Bullock is being unreasonable in this situation still. <laughs> and like he doesn't... Well, the second half of it, yeah. But the first half of it when he's like... Uh... You know, you you're gonna because he obviously knows what's going on, and he's you're gonna recommend me this guy, and if he doesn't come through, I'm gonna blame it on you. Yeah, that I, that one I can understand, but when he's like, if you don't recommend anybody and they suck, I'm still gonna blame you. <laughs> <laughs> that one maybe he's going a little too far. I think but. it even I think it even comes before that he doesn't. So like contrast him with Bill, right? When Hickok came to mm. the gym, Hickok drank with Swearingen, and they're they're, they're yes. in this scene. Yeah. Swearingen takes the whiskey out for them to drink, and, and Bullock does not drink. And as a as a sort of like nonverbal cue, Swearingen gets angry and puts away the whiskey bottle in the middle of the conversation. Right? Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, I, he's he he's more reasonable than he has been, but he's still not using his words. I guess is a good way to put it. Like Al Al respects someone who can talk to him, and Seth can't talk to him. So, was it McCall improved your appearance? No. Well, whoever got the job done, I hope you gave as good as you got. And it's good to have you back. Well, with me being superstitious and all hell breaking loose when you left. I'm here to talk about Mrs. Garrett. The planted her husband this morning? I wrote a man about coming to assay her claim, but he can't make it. Plenty of local alternatives. I want you to nominate someone. Do you? So if any way his work was mistaken, I'd be coming after you. You would? Yeah. Well, since I got nothing to do with the fucking venture, what if I decline to make the fucking recommendation? Then you better hope whoever I find does his job right, because I'm still holding you accountable. I ain't involved. E.B. Farnham offered on a claim. Farnham's your water boy, and I know what you've been trying to do to her. So here you come in all nobility. Threatening me with a dire result if the property that widow's husband felt worthless and wanted sold turns out not to be pinched down. You and I know how it is, Mr. Swearingen. 
How what is? She gets a square shake, or I come for you. What if I come for you? You ready for that? I guess I better be. Then close your fucking store, because being ready for me will take care of your waking hours, and you better have someone to hand the task off to when you close your fucking eyes. Yeah, I because I, I think we're getting a better sense of where Seth stands, and I think that it, it pairs it off against Alma here, which is that they... um. I, I think that this is an episode that's really built around the interpersonal relationships that are being built within the camp. And it, it's sort of, yeah. it's backgrounding, but it's not getting rid of the, I don't know what the term would be for the stuff that's like the nuts and bolts of like negotiating the leases and stuff like that. It's not, mm-hmm. people aren't really arguing about that anymore. They're into, they're arguing with each other about much more personal circumstances. And a lot of the characters have changed because of the death and the things that have happened to them in the camp. And Alma ha- and Seth have this exchange where he says, like, you're changed. And she she says, you are too, while they're having breakfast. Right, yeah. Um, I think that what's what's sort of infuriating about Seth or annoying about Seth and what separates him from a traditional Western hero is that Bullock does think that he is superior to everybody else. In a yes. way that is not really justifiable when you see the humanity of the rest of the characters in the camp. In a West, a traditional Western, I think that that character, the hero, would be justified in being superior to them. Like he's on a vendetta or he has vengeance against someone who's wronged him or he's going right. to right the wrongs that are happening in the town. And so you believe in him. Mm-hmm. But Bullock is... Uh, Bullock's unable to like see the forest for the trees a lot of times. And his... like his own myopic view of things causes him to be an asshole in these situations, where, which is why he comes across against Swearingen uh, this way. And the final point I think is just that like, because that scene ends after they have the confrontation, he goes downstairs and they come across Dan killing that guy uh, in the bar. And then he lets his body mm-hmm. drop Bullock. Who's ostensibly out there saying that he cares about the way things are supposed to be simply steps over the dead body of a guy who got killed right. in the bar because his right. his vengeance is purely personal. And it's like he, he thinks that he's fighting for a higher cause and it's not this fair sense of justice that really drives him, but it's more like his rage and anger at things that he thinks are beneath the way that he should be and the rest of the town should be. Yeah, it, it continues down the path of Seth being a, a pretty shitty cop, ultimately, because right. yeah. he's... He's got all the fire and the brimstone of the traditional uh, Western marshal, but this show really goes out of its way to show how bullshit that is because, like you're saying, he presents himself as as knowing what is right and what is just, but, you know, at the same time, he doesn't, he, he pays no attention to the guy who's just been stabbed to death for looking at a girl, yeah. you know, he, he's... He's got uh, he's got blinders on to things that don't concern him, and the things that do concern him, he believes are very important. In, yeah, very important, and that he is also in the absolute right. Right. Yeah, and I think that like I'm I'm borrowing this mostly from the Sappenwall review, but one of the reasons that he says that Alma and Seth bond with each other is because they both have that in common with each other. Yes. They, they both yeah, view definitely. each other as yeah. better than the other characters in the. Uh, the room with them. Alma thinks that about Trixie and sort of like yeah. Alma has a hard time talking to Trixie without sort of embarrassing herself because of the things that she thinks in terms of high society with Trixie. Yeah, I, I love that scene with, with where Trixie blows up at Alma because she Alma does that thing where I feel like 
everybody runs into it once or twice with someone who, you know, if they have a, uh, if they're at a party and they're talking to someone who's got more money than them or something and it's like, oh, you know what? You should go to Paris. It's beautiful. It's like, yeah, right. I can't fucking go to Paris, <laughs> lady. I'd love to go to Paris, but I can't. This is the end scene you're talking about, right? The very, yeah, the yeah. Fire, yeah, the very, yeah, yeah, it's where Alma is. Um, because Alma, it's, it's still not exactly clear why Alma is not leaving the camp. And it's infuriating to the character of Trixie who cannot leave the camp. Yeah. Why she wouldn't leave. And it's, I mean, she go, she she does a thing that I think is really effective, too, where she calls out Alma having the hots for Bullock, and it she does it in a way that makes it seem like Trixie is calling out the fact that Alma still thinks this is kind of a game. Yep. Like, there's, she's got butterflies in her stomach over this new hot cop guy, but Trixie is like, if I go back to Al and I lie to him, he will kill me. Right. And you are over here just getting, you know, the vapors over this cute guy. It's like, yeah. this is not a game, lady. You know, this is, I can't just take this kid and go to New York. It's a really, yeah, it's a really good scene. I think, I think Alma, all the characters in this are so well drawn in such subtle ways because like, on the one hand, you understand Alma sticking around for like a, a a top view. She's going to do right by her dead husband the way she never did right by him when he was alive kind yes. of thing. Yeah, making up for the past mistakes of <clears throat> yeah. the relationship. But it's not really just that because there are ways she could do that that were a, a little bit more efficient than the way she's handling things. And what must Mr. Bullock have been thinking as I inflicted my personal confidences upon him? I don't know. Nor do I. At least he kept a decent privacy. I have to go back to the gym. He's waiting for me now to tell him yours and Mr. Bullock's thinking about selling the claim. And I won't be able to lie anymore. Next I tell will be my last. So I better just get back there. Mr. Swearingen discovered our deception? Yeah. How? Looking at you walk out the fucking hotel. He did not. I was careful to see he wasn't watching in the window. It don't matter, Mrs. Garrett. Point is, I gotta go back. And you need someone to look to this child. And with choices bigger elsewhere, and nothing I can tell to hold you here, maybe you better think about selling and getting out. Would you want to take the girl and go? Where? I have no people anywhere. You could go to New York. Uh, I could have my relatives there see you established. What the fuck? What would keep you here? You want to fuck this man? Fuck him. Then think about the child. Don't use that language with me, Trixie, or that tone. Don't you want to say, to remember my place? I do, you rich cunt. And I'm going back to it. And I think it's, it is, you're right, it's similar to Bullock, where she has, even though she is a recovering dope addict. Uh, She's clean in this episode, though, That which is yeah. also kind of feeds into that, which is that with with full clarity, she's a little bit more... Um, 
I don't want to say conniving. She's she's certainly more thoughtful in what she's doing than she was in the previous episodes where she was largely relegated to just being dope sick. Yeah, you know, even even though she's kind of kicked kicked the the, the drug um and, and we've seen her go through these really low periods, she still has the same kind of energy about her a bit that was there when she's like telling her husband Let's just say we spent 20 grand and we had a good time and it didn't work. And right. we let, you know, like it's, it's a very, she still, even though she wouldn't come out and say it, I don't think, um, she still is viewing herself as above everything else that's going on here. Yeah. Cause, uh, she's not, she's not oblivious to the point that her, her husband was, but no. she still, she still has some, there's a lot of class. But she has to be reminded because there's an earlier scene yeah. in the episode where she she's like, "Oh, Trixie, I I how, like how loath of me to forget that you've risked your life tending to me this way." When she's talking about Swearingen uh, earlier on, but she she doesn't seem to internalize it the way that she needs to. She certainly didn't take um, Wild Bill's "Listen to the Thunder" uh, right. talk very seriously because mm. she can. And, <laughs> and now that she thinks she has Bullock in her corner, she's more inclined to stay there for what she thinks might be to sort of right the wrong and get their money back, but which Trixie is more accurately picking up on is that she she kind of is like, she's got like the, the the sort of like the woman who's falling in love for like the prisoner thing going mm-hmm. on. It's like, yeah. it's not a good situation, but you seem Florence to be unable Gale to avoid effect. it. Yeah. Yeah, I was just laughing because I was, I was thinking it would be great if they had a scene where Alma was like, you know, Mr. Hickok told me to listen to the thunder, but it hasn't rained in weeks. Here. I don't know what he was talking about. <laughs> He's rolling, spinning furiously in his grave as that goes on. I love that ending scene. I think it's my favorite ending scene of the yeah, show so it's far. Really, good. Uh, really yeah. good. Brings a brought a little tear to my eye. Actually, it's uh, very effective. I just the the language there too. Trixie calls her a cunt, and she's like, "Don't speak to me this way." Um, and it's this uh, this episode has a lot of good scenes. I also like the. Um, uh, the Charlie Utter and Jane talk to Bill's grave yeah. scene is Man, really good. That a, goes everywhere. That covers like comedy. That covers um, emotion. That covers the relationship between those two. And it's just one camera shot. And they 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 both did a fantastic job on that one. Man, it gets so like personal and emotional, and then it ends with that great bit where he's like, "Can I, can I do this tomorrow?" And she's like. <laughs> Sure, what the fuck are you asking me for? <laughs> I don't make the rules. <laughs> and they just walk off together. Oh, yeah. man. Like, yep. episodes like this, I think, are what elevate this show because as much as the intrigue and, and the, the backstabbing is really fun, it's just every character in this show is so interesting and so well written. And none of them are, they're just not. They're not. They're not treating you like you're dumb. You know, like the, the 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 dialogue that these characters have isn't just the characters explaining what their point of views are all the time. Yes, yeah. It's just you get a character like Trixie that you've been following for f- seven episodes now, who doesn't hasn't really had a ton of lines, but they position her in ways where you get a very clear um, idea of what she's about and what her situation is, so that when you do have this moment where she blows up at Alma, it feels totally natural and earned. Yeah. And it's and then on top of that, they start dropping in the thing where like she and, and Saul are kind of like yep. getting, getting, close. getting cute with each other. And it's just it's just such a well done I mean Charlie Charlie's 
Charlie's one of the MVP, the secret MVPs of this show. I think he's he's, he's really so good. good. Yeah, Dayton, Dayton Kelly is a very good actor as him. And he, he, it's funny. He just doesn't seem. He's such a good actor. Like it doesn't seem like he'd be capable of doing that scene with Jane in this show. Yeah. You know, like he's he's he has a lot of range. He can do pretty much anything that they they ask of him. Yeah, there's even. Like, there's even a payoff, a tiny, stupid payoff that I fucking loved, which was when Charlie goes to the bar where Bill was shot, and he's asking questions, and that one guy who's, who got shot in the wrist, yeah. who's, trying to, who's trying to angle for an excuse to have his name in the story so he can do, like, a one-man show or something. Yeah, he's a, ri- gets up. I, he's a writer or yeah, something. Yeah, he's a writer, yeah, yeah. yeah. He gets up, and he starts telling Charlie what's happening in a way that feels so phony because it's clearly something he's written and rehearsed. Yes. And it's just, it's so good. Yeah. And and they, they, they cap it off by him, like, sitting down, and the guy next to him goes, like, yeah, whatever you say. <laughs> like, like, like they know it's bullshit. You know, it's it's really really good. I think that casting and that performance was sublime for that guy. Yeah, because I he, don't know who that guy is, but he was really good. No, he he exists totally outside of like, you know, the scene is setting up. Just Charlie comes in and talks to Tom Nuttall, asking him like how it all happened, and Tom gives a very low key description of like this is you know McCall came in, Bill didn't see him coming, he didn't do anything about it. We tried to stop it, but no one knew what to do. And then just that guy at the poker table who we've seen in the previous episode, he came into the gym once and was talking about like he had a bullet in his wrist from the shooting and he wanted to testify in the trial and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. He comes up and just spins this very theatrical uh, telling to Charlie Utter who can just roll his eyes and be sort of dis- like, because that's the final, that's the final nail in the coffin of Bill is not a real person, but just a celebrity that people want to sort of monetize themselves off of and it's the you know bill lived that way and bill died that way and the final explanation to charlie utter about what happened is coming from that kind of a guy that no one else seems to particularly like can you tell me about it yeah it it was about sun up over at that belly union joint mr hickok plum gutted mccall at draw now here Mr. Hickok was at, at poker again. Say a couple hours of daylight left and in come that coward McCall. Walked up on him and shot him in the head. Bill never know when he come in. Um, those of us that did, we didn't have no inkling of what he intended. He just murdered him right where he sat. If I may, sir. This is here uh, while Bill was sitting. Uh, McCall entered from the front, approached the table, causing no apprehension because he had often frequented the game. Of a sudden, McCall produced a revolver and shouting, Take that, damn you! He fired. The muzzle couldn't have been three inches from Wild Bill's head. I'm told the Hickok fell dead immediately, but I won't testify to it. Because the bullet, after it passed through Wild Bill's brain, struck me in my right wrist, and I lost several seconds to pain before regaining my senses. Sir, you have my word as eyewitness to the rest, and I suppose this wound has added proof for the doctors they fear to cripple me in the hand I used to write. 
I will take the murderer's bullet to my grave. Thanks. Yeah, and even even there too, right? You've got Charlie coming into that into the bar. They're telling him what happened, and they are at no point, at no point in the scene does Charlie say the thing that everybody's thinking, at least anybody who's watching it is thinking, which is why did he sit with his back to the door? He never right. says it. Yeah. <clears throat> but it's so clearly written on his face when he's being told what happened and how it happened, that Charlie is confused that he knows that Bill allowed this to happen, right. but he won't say that. <clears throat> he says it eventually sort of at the gravesite when he says like... Uh, Why'd you let that guy get the jump on you or something? Right, yeah. So he, and like, so he's confused about it and stuff, but like they don't... Like it's, it just, it's played out so well that they can get that across without ever actually saying those actual words to you. It's, yep. just, it's just such a great scene. Oh, the the annoying guy has a sort of he's like he sat in this chair and he grabs the chair that right, is, is yeah. back to the to the the opening of the bar. Yeah, um, I like this episode uh, largely because I think that the the scenes between the characters are really great at this point. Like now that we've gone through the nuts and bolts of all their arguments, are moving away from like I set up shop here, you set up shop here. Uh, it's moving more into like the characters are now, as you mentioned, like Saul and Seth and Alma and Trixie are d- like relationships are developing that are running deeper than just business uh, associates and stuff like that. Um, the caretakers are k- taking care of the sick. A lot of this is um, the sort of like fraught nature of developing relationships like that. Like I probably, I don't know what the exact count would be, but it seems close to 50, 50% of the relationships that are developed in this episode are 50% honest and truthful and 50% people are playing each other when, with mm-hmm. what they're saying. Uh, the playing each other is most obvious with the miles and flora characters who are introduced in this one. Um, although it's only revealed that that's what they're doing at the end. Although it seems on rewatch, it's certainly very obvious that, that they're up to something from the first time you see them. Yeah. Um, Cy How and long? Al have uh, sort of duplicitous relationships with those two because they both want yeah. something from them. And then a lot of the relationships are uh, more truthful than that, which is like the Seth and Alma and Charlie and uh, Bill and Jane and stuff like that. So it's a, it's a mix, I suppose, of like all the, the, the huge variety of relationships that you could have in a situation are mostly being represented on screen. How do you know how many episodes those kids stick around for? Because I I very very vaguely remembered Kristen Bell being in the show, but I don't remember how long. I, I I assumed she was only there for one episode, but it seems like obviously more than that. Two, just two. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no. I, her I, uh, her breakout. Uh, this was before she got Gilmore Girls. <clears throat> she was on this show. Well, I'll have more on, to say about them next episode. Uh, are you sort thinking of, like of Veronica ends. Mars? Oh, I am thinking of. Is she was she yeah. was on Veronica Mars. Not who's Gilmore Girls. Uh, like the lead, yes, is uh, Alexis Bledel. Oh, really? Oh, maybe I'm th- then it is Veronica Mars. Yeah, is what I'm thinking of. So she got that right after this one. Um, oh, really? Okay. And I'll have more to say about the behind the scenes stuff uh, once that's over, so we can talk about that next episode. Uh, she's good in it, though. Yeah, she is. Yeah, I, I like that. The creepiness I, and all the all the male characters. Yeah, I'm, I've always been a little bit surprised she didn't have a, have a hit bigger. Because mm-hmm. I do think she's she's very good. Um, 
I, I think it's uh, I, I continue to be fascinated by the doubling and the in the mirroring that they do in the show, mainly with the gem and the uh, what the hell's the other place called Bella Union. The Bella Union, um, because where you've got Trixie. So first of all, you see how Al responds to uh, the brother and the girl. Um, <laughs> he keeps that, half jokingly asking the brother if his if his sister's going to suck some dick at the gym. Right, like that's the thing. <laughs> like that's the difference is he's kind of doing it half jokingly, where he's like, "I mean, if we can get to make it happen, that would be great." But I'm not going to force the girl to do anything. Whereas Sai is just such a fucking creep. Yes, yeah. And he's like, "Don't let her leave un- until well, just don't let her leave." Basically, yep. yep. Put her in some new and, clothes. Uh, and it's got like you get this mirroring effect with the way Trixie's handling the Norwegian girl and the way that uh, Joni's handling what tells her name Flo- Flora 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 Flora. Um, obviously it's different because Flora is older and more worldly, as you would say. Yeah, but um, the, the, I mean the, the the relationship there is fundamentally unhappy, and Flora sees it too because they have that scene where. Uh, Joni is getting her dressed up and telling her to like look smile because you know look happy right, because right. the Johns don't like to see unhappiness and she turns it around on her and says you should smile too, um, and Joni has that sort of heartbreaking line about like or at least I should get more practice pretending or something like that. Yeah, um, yeah. There, there's there's that. It's it's an interesting like the other sort of thing that's always bubbling throughout the rest of this episode is I think it's the most that the show is referencing the sort of. Um, like the the sexual relationships and the threat of sexual violence and the sexual power dynamics that's going on between men and women in the camp. Mm-hmm. Um, Al pulls a Don Draper from season four of Mad Men and grabs her by the pussy in this episode. <laughs> um, there's the the sort of um, Flora is clear. Flora's turn is shown by her uh, how she's captured the heart of that John in the streets mm-hmm. and comes up to her and she doesn't, she's indifferent to him. Um, and the sort of relationship stuff about like protecting the men, men seeing themselves as protectors of women and at this time and whether or not they need it and whether or not it's actually being a protector or it's causing some kind of harm it ties back to the doc Cochran line about those who move to justify themselves cause as much harm as those who don't try to do that. Um, mm. And so it's, it's, I think it's the most overt in this episode that there's a like a, a sexual power dynamic going on. <laughs> the thing that I was thinking, though, if I was Joni, I would be like, why was this so easy? I, I feel like she doesn't to get, put to, up oh, to, to get the much girl, of a you mean? fight. To, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like she obviously she uh, she confides in Joni that she she's a little bit more experienced than she looks. Not but, a virgin. Yeah. Right. But at the same time, it's like you're it's a big i don't leap. know it's it's a pretty big leap yeah there's nothing between else to like do. i had a boyfriend once and i'm gonna start having sex for money there's um i mean she she's clearly uh what does size say she, she's a quality piece of strange or something he has, yeah. he has some line like that but yeah it's uh and it is easy for Joni, although i guess there's really like if you're not gonna clean the floors what else is a woman going to do here? If you you, yeah. you either have money like Alma and you don't have to do anything, you clean the floors like Jewel does and like Miles does as he gets a job doing that at the gym, or you just have to stick to prostitution. I guess I I do think about that from time to time. Where I, 
every now and then I'll be like, before like factories existed, yep. what did 90% of the, the world's population do? Like Farms, if you were, yeah. if you were a far, you were either a farmer or you were like a tycoon or a king. <laughs> and what well, did everybody a, in the middle do? If you were a tycoon, you had factories, I suppose. But yeah, you just, uh, but you know what I mean? You like just you're, you're either, yeah, you're either a rich person or a farmer. And if you're in the middle, it's not like, I don't know. I guess you could open a shop or something. I guess Saul and Seth are kind of middle-class guys, but yeah, you, you'd open some kind of, uh, some kind of shop, do some simple selling and stuff, but you can't, uh, <clears throat> I think that's why so many people power. are excited to fight in wars, like in Gives the, in the Middle Ages and stuff. Yeah, I mean, what the fuck? Why not? Something to do. <laughs> you have no concept of what death is, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Valhalla, awesome. Great, let's do it. No, it's it's rough. I mean, it's, you know, it uh, the obviously in the terms of like, the show is at least portraying that like digging the gold out is uh, like, Ironically, it's the worst thing to do is finding the gold because then you just go into town and everyone takes the gold from you for something else, which is not necessarily unfair, but it it certainly makes it like, you know, if I were to go out to Deadwood, would I rather set up the shop or would I look for the gold? I guess with the shop, you're more guaranteed to actually get money and the gold is more like a lottery ticket that you're taking. Mm. But I guess that ties in thematically too. It's like the uh, digging for gold is like the tax on the poor, basically. Of lottery yeah. tickets. You know, I, I was thinking about that, too, because they're putting so much weight on this trying to get Alma to sell the gold claim. Yep. And every time they do one of these scenes where they're like, ah, gee, I just I just couldn't get it from her. And I was like, well, you better get it next time or I'm going to stab you in the eye or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, I keep thinking, why doesn't he have Dan just going out there and getting some of the gold? <laughs> like, what's <laughs> what's true. to stop him from doing it? <laughs> That's true. Why does he need? Why Alma doesn't know there's gold there, and what's to stop him from just sending people out there to just start taking it? Yeah, it's a good point. Just under uh, <clears throat> shadow of darkness at night, yeah. just have Dan out there digging up the gold. I don't know. That is a good question because there's no... Or, I mean, I don't know if you can trust this guy to do it, but give Ellsworth some money. He'll have him do it. Yeah. Yeah. And then kill him. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe people would be suspicious or they would be, they would know that something was up to no good. But it does, it does bring up a good question because Alma can't defend that space anyhow. Right. Yeah. No. Yeah. I do. Uh, my favorite, I think one of my favorite lines in the, in the episode that I'm not going to know verbatim was... Uh, in the 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 scene with al and farnham yes where after after he agrees to give him a percentage he says something like pick which one of these sweaty palms you want to shake al <laughs> or something like that <laughs> assume you ain't been privy to the ins and outs of that matter for the sake of fucking conversation huh i mean was i a sleepy bee when you and me declared undying loyalty and full faith mutual disclosure about every fucking detail, of every fucking move we were ever going to fucking make together. You used me as a pawn, Al. And you fucked up the game is the central fucking present issue. We agreed on 2,000. You want a fucking percentage instead? Is that such an inconceivable proposition? Yeah, you got a percentage, E.B. How big? 2% of the first million, half a percent after. You want to feel... A damp palm, Al. Select either of these hands. Just get to the funeral, E.B. Go to 20 if you have to. Just get that fucking claim. 20 if I have to. My word. 
You use me as a pawn, Al. <laughs> <laughs> he does. Al does have a, a great line though when uh, um, Farnham gets a little bit verbose, and he and Al says, "Say what you're going to say, or prepare for eternal fucking silence." <laughs> I love the L and EB uh, playing off of each other. It's a, it's been yeah. it's slightly repetitive as you're saying at this point because it is mostly just being sent out to, to Farnham has to do the dirty work. But um, you know, just to praise Sanderson again, he's so good at being a guy who makes the wrong decision at the wrong time all the time. Mm. Um, just his like forcing the issue with Alma at the funeral. You know, um, yeah. Well, I, you know, I I would like to say I don't before I got into comics. Mm-hmm. I did um, <clears throat> briefly work <clears throat> as someone who would go up to grieving relatives and try to buy land off of them at funerals. <laughs> yeah. And you would be surprised lucrative. at how lucrative it was. The, fa- the, the more desperate you seem, the more willing they are to just agree to your, to your, to your terms <laughs> while they're standing over their dead husband. Now you've, now you've moved to selling solar at family funerals. Just yes. Now's the time. <laughs> the financing is where it needs to be. Uh, my favorite, my favorite L line in this one, I think is uh, when he's talking to Seth and he says, if I come for you, are you ready for that? And Bullock says, I best I get her be better, better be. And Swearingen says, then close your fucking store because being ready for me will take care of your waking hours and you better have someone to hand the task off to when you close your fucking eyes, which is a very, very good line. I like that scene between the two of them to come back to that uh, full circle. That's good. And You know, I think one of the great things about this show is that for as verbose as they can get and flowery as they can get with their, their language, there is an economy of writing and dialogue when they need it. Like the, the first, I think it's the first scene in the episode where Seth and Charlie come into the camp where Jack is. Yeah. And you know, they're looking at the horse and then they're talking to this guy and I'm, and I'm thinking like, okay, in most Westerns, there's some sort of like back and forth and you know, it's a little bit tense about maybe they lie to this guy about what they're doing there and all this kind of stuff. Or the guy's more suspicious of them. Yeah. 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 And, they have they have them ask about Jack McCall, and then you get everything you need to know about what has been happening in this camp <laughs> from his up response. until this point. <laughs> when his response is the fucking jerks in that bunkhouse. <laughs> yeah, because Charlie and Seth are trying to be uh, cautious about giving away. Like, yeah. We're looking to buy this horse from this gentleman. If you'd like to know where he is, is well the fucking assholes over there. If you want to go, yeah, ask him. like, I don't know if he's like you don't. That's all you need. Like you, th- th- that whole scene is just so economically done because even that they just walk in and then it's like a couple lines of dialogue with jack and that's it and it just works so well because you you know everything you need to know about what's going on there evening evening back look at that paint charlie i've seen it i had a happy just like that foundered makes me miserable reminiscing on it do you know the owner if he'd sell the horse is what he really wants to know. Well, I don't know if he'd sell. But the fucking jerk's in that bunkhouse. What'd you think of uh, tying that off? So that scene ends with, uh, you know, Bullock has the, uh, you know, he's talking to him. He's talking to uh, McCall. Uh, who he calls mm-hmm. a loudmouth cunt in there, but he says, "If I if I blew your head off here, sitting with your back turned, that'd be a fair play as you gave him." And then he just pistol whips him instead. 
they draw the connection back to the Native American that he killed in the mm-hmm. earlier episode. And the um, the sacrifice there, I guess, is that Bullock's rage that was going to kill McCall was used up in that encounter, basically. And it gave him a chance to slow down and think about what he was doing. And mm-hmm. it's the it's the one moment that breaks Bullock from being like relentless Terminator cop going yeah. after McCall and seeing like his own justice is the thing that he's to do. And it ends instead in them bringing McCall to Yankton where he can actually be put through a real trial for what he did uh, with Wild Bill. Um, how'd you think all the Indian stuff played out at that point or like the motivations for it? Or the, did, did it improve the scene in retrospect? Because I think you said that you didn't really care for the scene, particularly in the first episode. Yeah, it did. Um, I, 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 I really like that scene, especially when he kind of breaks down a bit and, and, and goes into it. Um, <clears throat> you know, it, it did answer some questions like we were saying, like, well, he really, he really had a layup there with, with Seth on the ground, but, uh, he didn't, he didn't take the shot for some reason. And, and Seth, uh, says that Charlie told him that the, the brave couldn't kill him before he laid hands on him. Yeah. So yeah. like he couldn't, he couldn't jump him he had to like actually fight the guy yes <clears throat> which is interesting but yeah it's i i liked it because yeah it slows it slows seth down kind of breaks him and uh from this um blinded drive for a moment and there's a little bit of seth choosing not to perpetuate the cycle of violence in there yeah as well but also that kind of goes out the window when he gets back and he's like, Al, I'm going to fucking kill you. If you don't. <laughs> but even there, he doesn't, I mean, he's, he's taking, he's being a little bit more considerate about yep. how he's handling things, even just a little bit. Yep. Um, yeah. I thought that scene with, that was probably Oliphant's best scene so far, I think. Is cause the one he, with Saul. I think he's talking to Saul about the, about the yeah. Indian. Yeah. Yeah. I, cause I, I, cause He's so um, stoic. Well, stoic isn't the right word, but like he's so closed off. Yeah, he's uh, repressed, I guess would be a good word for him. You don't really get a a lot of sense of what's going on inside him. So having a scene where he actually kind of breaks down a bit was was good and I think well needed. Yeah. Those scenes between those two are always funny. It's always like Saul looking at him with these sort of like wide eyes. (laughs) Like in the other episode where he's like, He's like, my hand, my foot. What the fuck is my foot to your hand and my ear or whatever? And he doesn't understand what Smith is trying to tell him. And this one, it's about the uh, understanding what the the whole fight with the, the Native American yeah. was about and what it represented. I, I always get the feeling that, 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 that look that you're talking about that he always gives him is Saul kind of being happy that Seth finally gets it. Yes, yeah. You know, like yeah. he's they're, they're buddies, but... Saul understands that Seth has these blinders on, and so when the blinders come off for a minute, he's like, yeah, there you go, bud. Yeah, Saul seems to understand that you can't... Bullock's the kind of person you can't tell something. He doesn't get it. Right. Like, he has yeah. to he has to experience it, and Saul just has to kind of set the ball on the tee for him so that right. it happens that way. He's one of those people where you have to make them think it's the, their idea yeah, that their they came idea. up with. Yeah. yeah, yeah, Bullock is that kind of person, and um, he doesn't really change until he does what he wants to do and realizes it either came out badly or the right way. And then he adjusts going forward from that point. Mm. Um, yeah, we got more Psy in this one. Psy is becoming increasingly slimy uh, oh, with everything. such a creep. Uh, even just with um, Flora and also, uh, you know, when Andy Kramed comes in for his stuff at the end 
uh, and <clears throat> just doesn't get much. He gets an offer for some some money to buy some new clothes, and he turns it down. But then Sai just stuffs it down his shirt and tells him to join the circus or something. Yeah, still still unclear what their relationship is, but uh, yeah. apparently it's over now. Yes, I guess that they like the because Crane kind of represents the. He's the most obvious to see the the change that like. I think one of the major themes of the episode is that the near death experience has caused everyone to reconsider their lives in some way. Yeah. So Kramer, when he came to town, was obviously a con man like Cy, who they were talking mm-hmm. about starting up some new game or some new con that they could run. And then he got sick. And the only thing he said when he was sick was he was just laying on the ground moaning that he apologized for something. He never was clear yeah. about what he was apologizing for. But it's clear that the metaphor is like he's apologizing for the past life that he lived and he becomes a new character once he becomes well from the smallpox and he has a new lease on life. Uh, I think a lot of the characters are that way. Like a lot of the characters are just at an inflection point where the death is considering the death is causing them to reconsider where they stand in the way that uh, death tends to do to people. I don't know whether or not every character is going to stick with it, but that's what the Kramer thing represents. But the, the character that it sticks out most is that Sai seems to be a character who's incapable of change from that mechanism. You know, Sai has no, even swear, like the, in the, the mirroring that you're talking about, like last episode, we were talking about how Al didn't attack Trixie when he sort of was getting suspicious about her. He does Mm -hmm. hear, but he's not nearly as violent as he was with her early. And she actually convinces him in my opinion, she convinces him about her sadness of having been in this situation in the camp and she's not allowed to leave. And that actually gives Al some pause about what he's doing and he lets her go. Mm-hmm. But Tolliver, no matter what story people will say to Tolliver, Tolliver is only interested in protecting himself and feeling no sympathy for anyone else who might come into his orbit. Yeah, they they continue to do this really... Uh, clever thing where they <clears throat> excuse me they make al more uh sympathetic by making him just more honest about how dishonest he is yeah yeah where where sai is very much putting up a, a front that where he's you know if he goes in for a hug he's gonna put a knife in your back yeah Al is much more like he's going to tell you he's going to stab you in the chest. Yeah, it's a good, you know? it's a good point. Sai, yeah, Sai is me. I, I see myself. Sai is you. Well, I see myself in Sai's weakness. Where Sai, I have a weakness that I share with Sai. I guess is the way to say it, that. Like if I'm in an argument with someone like Amy, I have a hard time owning up to what I acknowledge to be a mistake on my part. Sure. So, and and sure. I, I think that Sai has that where Al is much more honest about his uh, intentions and like when he makes a mistake, he kind of owns up to it in a different way. Sai is the kind of person who will always rationalize the evil that he's done to somebody and not really own that he's responsible for it. Lazarus, is it? Look at you, you son of a gun. Hello, Sai. Good to see you, Andy. Don't be afraid to shake with me, Eddie. I ain't contagious no more. Highly become an outfit. <laughs> I'm here for my belongings. Look, they're gone, Andy. Measures to stop the spread. <clears throat> ah, hell, the important thing is you're well. I'll front you whatever you need. Let's get something going. Huh? 
Andy? In the flesh, sweetheart. Which ain't much to look at. You made it, Andy. And we ain't getting nothing going. All I come back for, Si, was my things, and you toss them, too. Why don't you take this and get yourself out of that clown outfit? Once you've cooled off a little, think how you'd have done different when somebody showed up in the shape you was in and my responsibilities to meet. Better than to throw them in the woods to fucking die? Then don't think about nothing, Andy. Use the money for a horn to toot and go join the fucking circus. If you look at the way they kind of run their, their respective places, Cy is always trying to run a game on somebody where Al is just aware of the way of how things work and he takes advantage of it. Yeah. Like I think I think that comes out in his speech about the uh the specialists, as yes. he calls them. <laughs> the <titty laughs> where he's like, Yeah, where he's like, Yeah, I just understand that there are needs that need to be met and I can position myself to do that and and make a make money off of it and capitalize on it. Yeah. Whereas Cy I don't think would ever say that out loud. He right. would be doing that behind your back and, you know, shaking your hand while he's picking your pocket but uh it's all appearances he, right the bella union right, looks exactly. like a legitimate all, yeah it's all flash yeah and i think i think they do a good job kind of showing you get, getting a little bit more into what al's about because there's the, the the specialist scene and then there's also the bit when seth comes back and and saul kind of saul says the thing about how swear engine kind of took control of dealing with smallpox because he realizes that dead people can't pay for women and beer right yeah 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 and that's the we talked about that in the the town hall scene like it's motivated it's i think deadwood just gets a lot right in that sense of like the the things that are done are not motivated by like the best interests at heart in a lot of cases like there is a sort of uh, selfishness and a personal um desire to succeed that drives a lot of the decisions but what the show is saying is that like the decisions that enable things to survive that way tend to flow in this direction of organizing themselves into a little community that they have. And that like the, the, it calls back to reverence, like all the, the people have a different role. Like someone's the hand, someone's the foot, someone's the mouth or mm-hmm. whatever. And the self-interest, the self-interest is kind of limited when you create that architecture around it. Like Al, Al's able to, in a way that Sai is not, Al's able to fit into the new structure that's being built around them, and he comes off as less villainous than Tolliver does in a way that you could actually see a lot of the people in town or the camp would kind of support Al as they would not support Sai, even though they're right. doing exactly the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, it's... um, I continue to just... I, I think it's just, uh, you know, we're in the the doldrums of Voyager's third season or something. But it's just like I I find every scene of this show, there's just there's something there in each scene. Yeah, there's like something to, to see. There's something to think about. There's something to listen to. The language continues to be very evocative and um, clever. And the characterization is great. Just little moments like... Um, when Farnham is trying to get to Trixie and Saul is blocking him from the door and he gets close enough to yell at her to make sure that yes. he delivers the message and then he scurries <laughs> off. It's just such a little slime ball. But just like every every moment like that is just um, just so wonderfully constructed. Yeah, and you know, even um, talking about 
uh, how Alma kind of thinks that she's better than people to a certain extent. She makes light of ignorant of their suffering might be a good way to yeah. say it too. Yeah. yeah. She, uh, they have that bit where she makes light of pretending that she's doped up and Trixie's kind of like, yeah, you should. And right. then yeah. she doesn't. And then obviously Al figures it out and she's like, I didn't, how did he know? I didn't even see him out there. And it's like, well, yeah, you, he knows you gotta, everything. You gotta lady. live the gimmick, yeah. baby. You know? <laughs> yeah, right. Yep. No, it's a good point. Yeah, that's her her own either naivete or arrogance causes Trixie potential violence that happens slightly, but it's not to the worst case scenario that it could have been. Like, um I uh I wonder if the show do you think the show sold the danger that Trixie's in enough going back to Al? Um no, not quite, because I think you get a lot of it. I think you get a good sense of it from her and the way that she talks about it. But um, I think Trixie and Al's relationship is so fucking weird that I don't know if it's totally uh, clear how bad he would actually go at her. Yep. I mean, clearly, he's not going to be nice about it, but... No, I... So it's it's I think it's weird because it's caught in a position where I think it has to undersell it because of the point where the characters are in their relationship with each other. So it can't be she can't go back and be constantly scared of him and him react with total violence because it's like you know you had talked about Trixie as as having a sort of um, a subtle like uh, story or whatever is going on with her. Trixie's mm-hmm. actually interesting to me because. She has relatively little screen time, yet her arc is extremely clear in the show, I think, which yeah. is that like she's breaking away from Al and the gem and her position in society. Like they, they kind of put a point on it in this episode that that's what's happening. But the at the point of their relationship now, they can't go back and have her under too much threat because in a weird way, her reaction to death is to no longer fear what might happen to her because the break is happening, you know? So her going back is like the the death or the violence that might meet her is a kind of freedom from what she does not like about her current situation anyway. And so mm-hmm. Al kind of can't win in either case. Like if he, if he kills her or something, she gets the freedom that she wants. Right. But Al also, I think Al loves Trixie is the way that yeah. I read it. And so... When she talks about her sadness of being stuck and that some people are allowed to move on, but she's always stuck there, I feel that he feels a genuine like pathos for her and regrets what he's done, and that's why he lets her go. He still makes her work for him, but there's no further violence at that point. Yeah, and I think it's it continues to mirror with Joni, too, because Trixie is recognizing how she is at the bottom of the barrel, and she is choosing to... Uh, take matters she's choosing to have a little bit more self-respect and make decisions and try to do good um even yep. if it's in small instances um whereas Joni is pretty resigned to the fact that she is in hell basically yeah and i think that they all imprint that on the younger girls that right. are in their yeah. orbit yeah, yeah i was just thinking that too yeah because the uh what's the girl's name the blonde girl the uh, the Mets the girl, so- uh, Sophia. I don't think she Sophia. said her, her name yet, but her name is Sophia. 
Sophia, in, you know, Trixie sees Sophia and sees someone who is not ruined by the world yet and right. wants to kind of like foster that and and that gives her a little bit of motivation to to do the right thing whereas when Joni's uh confronted with Flora um she's just like she she makes no attempt to try and talk her out of any of any Joni sees no next. other option she can't she can't <clears throat> right. Trixie's much more optimistic about the future than Joni is yeah yes yeah uh, uh, optimistic about the future for the other person because i don't yeah, think it, trixie oh, is necessarily sure, yeah. i don't think she's optimistic about her own future sure i think she's seeing a chance to help somebody else which would kind of i don't know maybe be some sort of redemption for her i don't yeah. know but yeah but Joni is not at that point where Joni is just like no this is how it is for me and this is how it is for you and this is how it is for everybody yeah right ties into you have to pretend to be happy is Joni's outlook right. and yeah. trixie believes that happiness is actually out there and possible if they just try harder or they try to get to that point where they can get happiness. You like how that falls? Sure. Do you like it, Flora? Why not? I prefer you happy, honey. But if you can't be, you need to pretend at it better than you're doing or you're going to be hungry and cold and getting done to you for nothing outside. What you'd have made money to live on and save up besides if you acted the part in here. I thought I only had to act it with them that want to stick it in me. You never know who that might be, Flora. Final point before we go. We haven't talked about Smith, Cochran, and Calamity Jane taking care of the smallpox patients yet. Yeah. Um, there's not much going on there. They continue to do that. They're the caretakers of the camp. Um Cochran is the continued to be presented as the sort of like the most, I would call him the most like ethically straight arrowed character. He, mm-hmm. and they do it interestingly because he, he, Cochran is sure of what his intentions are, but he always challenges the people who are in his path. So it was either Calamity Jane before when he's talking about her getting drunk. And then this one, he's not afraid to, make the reverend at least not question his faith but he like semi insults the faith idea just to get him to rest where he says yeah the the smith has the point about like maybe my brain tumor that's giving me seizures is like is like a window into god's (laughs) will or whatever and he says yeah maybe it is infinite the infinite argument you can have over that stuff is like well yeah maybe my cancer is god speaking to me well yeah okay but you can still fight it right still take take a seat you're you're not doing too well so I, I like that. I like the, the you starting to feel uh, sadness for the Smith character too. His seizures are more frequent at this point. Um, mm-hmm. Then that's it. Any other thoughts about those guys taking care of the smallpox patients? No, um, I'm I'm happy that I'm assuming that's sort of coming to an end. That the story, that storyline, the plague. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. That's good. I think I think they got the most out of that stuff. Um, and I'm glad that it's not going to be sticking around much longer. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I love the doctor. He's his. Yeah, he's got some sort of weird, twisted morality that somehow makes him the straightest shooter out of everybody, even though he's just as fucked up as everybody else. He says what he believes and he lives by it. I think right. He's, he's yeah. consistent in that way, <clears throat> which is it makes him an interesting foil for for the Reverend in that in that way. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. It's a good show. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, hope it, I hope it gets a second season. <laughs> we'll see. No spoilers on this show. 
Although I think I spoiled the Sophia name, although I don't know if people are really going to consider that a spoiler. Um, she must reveal that coming up soon because she's talking more. She she does the the sequence, to, I think because they talk about it in this episode, right? At the gravesite, she says Mama, Papa, and her brother or sister's names, but she doesn't say her name to mm-hmm. Trixie. So. Also, I was I did look this up. I didn't realize this. This little girl, Sophia, is this is actually the same character, Sophia, from the Golden Girls. Well, <laughs> this is this you mean the character is in the same universe as the Golden Girls. Yes, Golden this Girl. is the same. This is uh, this little girl grows up to be a Stelgetti <laughs> in Golden Girls. That's how old what an Sophia arc. is in the Golden Girls. What yeah. an arc! They don't have the uh, the Titanic episode of uh, Sophia on the Golden Girls just coming back to Deadwood and yeah. just flashing back to all this stuff. <laughs> Turns around and calls Blanche a cocksucker. <laughs> Rose, yeah, I guess Blanche would. Blanche is the kind of the, the actually, sultry one, right? Would yeah, you, actually, I I screwed it up. If uh, any of the Golden Girls fans are probably screaming at me because uh, uh, Rose is actually the one with the Norwegian background. Oh, she's from Saint Olaf. It's all yeah, I fucked confusing. that up. Sorry. Is is no Blanche is the main one. What's the name of like the sort of uh, Blanche? The sexy Blanche is one. the yeah. Blanche is is the sexy one. Blanche is right? sexy. I thought Blanche is the main character, the white-haired older one. Am I wrong? No, that's that's Dorothy. That's Dorothy. Okay, gotcha. You must be right then, Blanche. <laughs> Thanks, everybody, for listening. Hope you enjoyed the content today. You can go to patreon.com slash the Penske file if you enjoyed something pretty and you want to support the podcast and all the other podcasts that are up there. Patreon.com slash the Penske file. You can check out our Star Trek shows. You can check out all the other shows that, Clay, you can talk about right now if you want to. I can talk about other shows that we have, such as the Rotten Horror Picture Show, where myself and co-host Amanda talk about films off the 200 best uh, horror movies of all time list from Rotten Tomatoes. And on Patreon, we're currently doing Video Nasties, which is fun. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's also the Badass Podcast, where myself and Sean Murphy talk about Batman the Animated Series. And we're in the middle of... Uh, season two of Batman Beyond. We got an episode coming up where Sean's going to talk about do a bit of a post mortem on his book, uh, what Batman Beyond the White Knight, which is just ending, and oh, it's nice. going to talk. We're also going to talk about what uh, he and I are working on next, which is another spinoff from White Knight. So a lot of stuff out there to listen to. Very good. And our next episode of Deadwood is called Suffer the Little Children. So we will see you then. Charlie, you vanished your fucking murder. And that Bullock fellow was with me that you seemed to like. Although it occurred to me to wonder what the fuck they didn't do for the cocksucker right on the fucking spot. Is that something we need to get into in front of you? the biggest mountain in the territory. You talk to him. Tell him whatever you want. I got that mail route in Cheyenne that we talked about. I was bringing back supplies to them hardware boys, and I run into that Bullock fella. He was out there looking for that McCall that, that killed you. And he run into some heathen boy, and he had one hell of a fight. <laughs> boy, and he just, he got, he got, fu- he got fucked Can I? Can I tell him some more tomorrow? 
Sure, what the fuck are you asking me for? I don't make the rules. 